This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning, everybody. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're having an ordination service, which is why the younger pastors are wearing ties. Once you hit 60, you don't have to wear a tie. We're going to be recognizing Stephen St. John's calling and officially receiving him as a pastor. It's a very special Sunday for our church. And this, this sermon is intended to instruct the church and also be a charge to Stephen. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 and read the first 16 verses. This is God's Word. It's a gift to us. He is speaking to us. You are wise to purchase those scriptures and to persevere in reading through the Bible. And it's a great privilege and central to our time today is looking at His Word to receive from Him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I, there, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with, with, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I'm sorry, I got excited. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's very attractive what God is doing. Central to His purposes is the church. And today, as we think about receiving a new pastor, I want us to consider that it's God who gives the church a pastor. An ordination service is evidence of grace. It's evidence that God is at work in our midst. I want your faith to be encouraged. I want you to be edified personally as you observe and watch God giving us a spiritual leader, a pastor. I'm going to give you a history test to begin with. What famous event took place in Tennessee in April 1862? Don't ever shout out the answer. Shouldn't be too hard to guess. It had something to do with the Civil War, 1862. It was the Battle of Shiloh. And I've been to the battlefield. I've read a number of accounts of the battle. And recently I've been reading a biography of a particular leader and learning about some of the leaders, the commanding officers in the battle. And it's been very instructive about leadership. Major C.F. Smith was an important figure in the lives of U.S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant became a president. William Sherman, a famous uh, general in the Civil War. He was C.F. Smith. You've never heard of him, but he was, he was influential in their lives. They had gone to the military academy. They were both there when he was one of the leaders there. And he was said to be a, a, a moral influence in their life over both of them because of their respect for him. He was a very admired man. He was not as the author of this bio said, perturbed by being commanded by or surrounded by colleagues who were greatly his junior. He wasn't perturbed by leading with people he used to lead or being led by them. And because he wasn't perturbed, offended by this, his experience was available to serve Ulysses S. Grant and William Sherman because he didn't alienate them. And so they were able to benefit and he was able to influence them. You've never heard of them, but he influenced a future president, two of the most famous generals in the war. If he had been self-focused, if he had complained, oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't be following them, they should be following me, it would have been a great loss. On the other hand, there was a colonel in Sherman's division, Thomas Worthington, a strange character, Sherman said of him. He had been ahead of Grant and Sherman at West Point, and he continued to behave as if he was their superior. In other words, he was the exact opposite of C.F. Smith. Sherman said he strutted about like a commander-in-chief. At one point, just prior to the Battle of Shiloh, he took his whole division, 
and move them out of place and put them first. Because he wanted to be first. And Sherman said he did it because he was competitive. He was conceited. And so Sherman wouldn't tolerate this. He made him get back in the boats. They were on the Tennessee River. I'm sure it was humiliating. It was a massive undertaking. I'm sure the whole division didn't appreciate it. It made him go back and get in his place. And this just hours before the battle started. Sherman, on the other hand, was a very gifted leader. Everybody recognized this. Didn't mind following him. Didn't mind him leading them, even though they were peers. But he didn't think too highly of himself. He never wanted that position. He said he would rather be just one of the guys. Now, Ephesians 4 has a lot to say about leadership, not military leadership, but leadership in the church. But these leaders at the Battle of Shiloh, it seemed to me as I read this, proved the importance of humility for effective leadership in any field. In the church, Paul says, it's a non-negotiable. A pastor cannot be competitive. He can't be conceited. If he's going to fulfill the ministry that he's being called to by these verses, I think a pastor has to be content with whatever position the Lord has for him if he's going to be this kind of leader. He can't be a man who's going to get perturbed if suddenly he's repositioned, if he finds himself in a lower position than he's had in the past. He can't strut about for any reason, certainly not because... He thinks he's better than everybody, that he's superior to everybody. He can't jump in front of others. In fact, he can't even want to jump in front of others. On a positive note, our congregation and our pastoral team thinks Stephen St. John is a humble man. We believe the Lord has given us a wonderful gift in giving us Stephen added to our pastoral team. He is a gifted man, but he's a humble man. So it it really is a a great joy to set aside this service today for his ordination, to set him in, to recognize his calling and receive him as a pastor here at our church. We see the invisible hand of providence at work at this moment. So let's look at Ephesians 4, and as I said, hopefully this will be instructive to us as a church and also a charge to Stephen about what it means to be a pastor. As you read this, I'm sure you saw, you thought of similarities with Ephesians 4, with Romans 12 through 15 that we looked at last week. Paul's exhortation to this church also flow from all the truth that he's taught in the first part of the letter. And these these exhortations have authority because they're coming from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 1 he says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. It's 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 a command. It's an imperative. I urge you to remember what he said in Romans, not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, of the calling 
to which you've been called. He's a prisoner for the Lord, for the Lord's sake. And he's writing to them for that reason. He's writing to these believers and he's reminding them of their calling that he talked about in chapter 1. You can look over there if you want, verse 4. He says, this is their calling. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So in light of what God has done, Paul exhorts the church in Ephesus to live differently. Just like he exhorted the church in Rome, live differently. Don't be like the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by renewing of your mind and live a life worthy of this amazing calling. 19th century theologian Charles Hodge said, to be raised from the depths of degradation and misery and made the sons of God and thus exalted to an inconceivable elevation and dignity does and must produce humility and meekness, gentleness. Where these effects are not found, we may conclude the exaltation has not taken place. Paul says in verse 2, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you receive with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Again, he's pounding this nail of unity that we looked at last week of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just like that letter to Rome, Paul is, is focused on the unity in the church but he's explaining here, he understands the key to this unity is, is humility. It's lowliness, it's gentleness, it's patience, it's long-suffering, forbearance. Our calling requires this. In light of our calling, we should be humble. We should be gentle. We should be patient. We should be long-suffering in our relationships with one another. And the result is unity in the church. Believers have an impulse to be low, to go low. They aren't self-exalting. In light of that calling, how can you exalt yourself? How can you look and be aware of your guilt, your weakness, and what you deserve apart from Christ and exalt yourself? And so believers... Christians have an attitude that motivates them to be low, to be unnoticed, to be unpraised. Christian leaders have an impulse to be like Major Smith. They're not perturbed by being commanded by someone else, even if they're younger. They're, they're examples of all humility. They're not like that strange character Thomas Worthington, not to be confused with Thomas Worley, by the way, who strutted about like he was commander-in-chief. 
It's their calling. They want to act like a leader who is worthy of this calling. There's no competitive conceit. It makes for a lousy leader in any field, in business, in sports. You've heard people say he's not a team player. The military. Competitive conceit makes for a lousy leader. But in the church, it's, more, it's even more imperative that there be genuine humility. All humility. If a man is self-exalting, he really is disqualified. From biblical church leadership. In Romans 12, remember Paul said, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Humility is to characterize the church, so it must characterize pastors, leaders. They're called to be examples of these attitudes. They're called to be an example of someone who's not haughty, who doesn't think too highly of himself, who associates with the, the lowly because of the way he perceives himself, who isn't wise in his own, own eyes. Pastors should be men who do not seek high positions. Notice in, in verse 2 the connection between humility and gentleness. When someone is humble and gentle and strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, it is a powerful combination. One theologian said, one of the loveliest attributes of our nature, one of the, the loveliest virtues you can imagine, humility, gentleness, and strength. Gentleness is an unresisting, uncomplaining attitude. It's what allows us to bear with each other without being irritated when, when we get sinned against and somebody fails us. If we're gentle, then we don't resist, we don't complain, we forbear, we don't harbor resentment. Remember, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly. Dane Ortland wrote a book entitled Gentle and lowly, the heart of, a, a heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. He says this, gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. This is who he is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. We're his disciples. Our goal is to be like him. That would mean being gentle and lowly. If we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. He is an example for us of what Paul is calling for in Ephesians 4. Gentleness is symbolized by a lamb who doesn't speak up when it's being carried to be sheared of its wool. It's one of the most wonderful of all the virtues we see in the Son of God. Hodge says, the most exalted of all beings was the gentlest. So to be long-suffering or patient with others 
is something that Paul exhorts the whole church to have. We saw it last week. We see it again this week. It leads us to respond differently. We just don't conform to the world. We're transformed and we respond differently when we're sinned against, when we disagree. We, we don't become angry. We're not frustrated when we're humble and gentle with the weaknesses or failures of those around us. We're patient. We forbear. Patience is, is often attributed to God, isn't it? In his kindness, he is said to be patient with you and me this morning when we sin. You recognize that this morning? You know God's been patient with you this morning? Sure you do. He bears with us when we're like him. We do the same. If you look down at verse 32 in chapter 4 here, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the way we should relate to others. So Paul says, verse 2, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. When we behave like this, unity is preserved. Hodge again, he says this, the peace which results from love, humility, meekness, mutual forbearance is essential to the union and communion of the members of Christ's body, to the unity, to the fellowship of the church, which is the fruit and evidence of the Spirit's presence. The unity is the, is the evidence that God the Holy Spirit is present as hatred, pride, and contention among Christians causes the Spirit to withdraw from them, so love and peace secure His presence. And as his presence is the condition and source of all good, and his absence the source of all evil, the importance of the duty enjoined cannot be overestimated. Love, humility, forbearance cannot be overestimated. It's about God's presence in the church. He's the source of our life. It's our goal, the peak of our purpose, is to be a place for Him to dwell. And that's how important humility and gentleness and forbearance is. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Just like in Romans, Paul recognizes there is diversity in the church, including with the grace given in these gifts. Every member has been given a grace. Every member of the church has a gift, but they're diverse. They're different gifts. Not everybody has the same gift. And the pastor has a gift, and he is gifted to lead. So it makes sense why Paul puts the emphasis on leaders in the context of encouraging the church to grow up to be like Christ. One of his favorite illustrations for the church is the human body. The, he calls it the body of Christ, the body. The church is made up like a body, like a human body of many members. He comes back to this repeatedly. And they all have different functions. Why? Because grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you have this measure 
you have this measure, I have this measure. There's diversity. The church isn't all an eye, it isn't all an ear. But, but that diversity is consistent with, in fact, it's essential to unity, if you think about it. It's essential. And the position of each member of the body is not determined by the member. You don't decide, you know, I'm going to be an eye, or I'm going to be an ear. It's determined by God. The invisible hand of providence is at work. That's what we believe. We believe today's ordination service is designed by God. It's, it's a moment where the Lord is giving us this man, and he's doing this. He's given him grace. And his position, his gifts, his function are determined by Christ. That's what we believe. Not everybody is called to be a pastor. There is diversity of gifts. And, and these gifts are distributed by Christ himself. The giver is Christ. It, it makes a huge difference. You're going to have to follow me on this one, but I, I thought this might illustrate the point. I have trouble keeping up with my cell phone at home. You get to be my age. A lot of times you're, you end up in a room and you don't even know why you're there. So trying to keep up with your iPhone is a daunting task. And when I have misplaced my iPhone, things begin to get tense in the house. So if I ask my wife, Sherry, if I say, where's my iPhone? You can see tension begins to mount because she knows that the longer I look, the more irritated I'm going to become. Until eventually I'm going to cry out, It's the woman you gave me, Lord. <laughs> Sherry, what'd you do with my iPhone? You know, somebody has done this since Bryant moved out. There's nobody else. It had to be Sherry. I have one place my phone has repeatedly ended up and I have no recollection of ever putting it there, but it keeps ending up there. It's not where it goes. It's not where I want to put it. So I've decided maybe it's the invisible hand of providence at work in my life, taking my phone from where I put it and putting it there. And that's why I can't find it. It's, and think about it. It's his iPhone. And when I can't find it, it reveals my weakness. I'm clearly not God. I acknowledge God's sovereignty. I acknowledge my dependence. I begin to cry out to God to help me find my iPhone. Actually, it's more likely I just forgot where I put my phone. But the point is that if I could think like that, it would help me, wouldn't it? It would help me not be irritated because I'd realize God was working. God was doing something. It was his purpose behind it. And I could submit to that easier than just somebody has taken my iPhone. I'm an idiot. I can't remember where my iPhone is. I'm spending hours looking for it. It's frustrating. When it comes to spiritual gifts in the church as we look at ourselves, if, if we think, 
I decide what my gift is, or that guy decides what my gift is, it's a temptation for us. But if we recognize and know that Christ builds his church, Christ gives gifts to every member, but he decides what that gift is, it'll help us guard our heart. It's the invisible hand of providence that is behind this ordination service. I am so aware of this. It's like Stephen St. John has popped out of the sky and landed in our congregation. And he obviously is called to be a pastor here. And I am thankful. If you knew his history, if we had time to go into that, you would go, it's the invisible hand of providence. We see God at work. That's why it should build your faith. He is sovereign in the distribution of the gifts. They are given by grace. You don't merit a gift. And so the apostle Paul is an apostle, but he was made an apostle when he was a blasphemer and he was harming the church. It was a gift of God's grace that made him an apostle. So Paul says everyone should be humble. They should be content with their gifts and their positions. They shouldn't envy those that seem to be above them. They shouldn't look down on those who seem to be below them. We should accept with joy whatever position we have. And with all that said, he focuses on the gifts of leadership in the church. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists. Those are all foundational to the church. And then kind of the, the Christian leadership in their local churches that they would have been aware of were the shepherds and teachers. I think that's one office to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. These, these shepherds and teachers or pastors and teachers were essentially the church leaders of the day. If you look in the book of Acts in chapter 20, Luke talks about a meeting Paul had with these very pastors. Acts chapter 20, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Here, elders are called overseers. They're in charge. They govern the church. And their function is to shepherd the flock. It's an image he, he uses. A pastor's like a shepherd of a flock. The church, it's, a, it's, it's an image meant to help us capture the function of this shepherd and teacher. God has given shepherds and teachers to the church and they have a function. They lead the church through teaching and through example. 
Whatever else a shepherd and teacher provides for God's people, he is to give them an example to follow. In 1 Peter, we'll see that Peter teaches that the pastor's primary task is to be an example to the congregation. Of course, the key example for believers is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example of how we should behave, of how we should live. He's an outstanding example of humility. He's an outstanding example of not looking out to our own interests, but looking out to the interests of others. He's he's an example of not living to please ourselves, but living to please and serve others for their good, to build them up. He's an example we saw last week in Romans 15 of how to welcome those we disagree with. He's an example of generosity and sacrificial giving. He's he's the example of a life of love, according to the Apostle Paul. And all Christians are called to follow his example. This is what it means to be his disciple, his follower. And pastors and teachers are especially called to follow that example so that they can lead others to follow Christ faithfully. And this should be sobering to Stephen St. John this morning and all the pastoral team. Paul understood the pastor's primary job is to follow Christ and be an example. A couple pastors, I read a book about pastoral ministry that they wrote, and they said the preacher's gift proves its value to the body of Christ as his character demonstrates the truth of what he declares. It's the duty of every Christian to be an example, but it's especially the duty of a pastor. They have a greater responsibility. The stakes are higher. Pastors are not perfect. They shouldn't try to pretend they are perfect. It doesn't mean they can't provide by the grace of God an example for the congregation. It's what they're called to do. And Christ makes his grace available for them to do just that. When they are a good example, it's by the grace of God. It's the work of the Spirit. When any Christian falls into sin, he hurts others. But when a Christian leader falls into sin, he does a lot of damage to a lot of people. I remember when I was a young pastor, I went to a meeting, a a pastor's meeting, and there was a Christian leader there. If I told you his name, you'd know who he is. And he told the story, heartbreaking story. He was a father, and it just had recently happened. Uh, uh, his daughter's youth pastor had committed adultery, and it had damaged her faith. And he told this story, and he, he went and picked the youth pastor up in his car, took him for a long ride, and said, do you know what you have done? And made it clear to him. I, that was back in the 1800s, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. It deeply impacted me as a, as a young pastor. I never want to be the subject of a story like that. It should be sobering for us. 
called to be examples, called to teach and to be examples. And this is why we never want to push young men into leadership positions too quickly. It's why the New Testament says a pastor shouldn't be a new comfort and you shouldn't lay hands on a, a young man too quickly, too quickly. You don't want to be hasty in, in ordination. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, let no one despise you for your youth. So comparatively speaking, Timothy was young, but he said, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And what he means by that can be seen in the qualifications for an elder. If you look in 1 Timothy 3, he's teaching Timothy, this is, this is what we're looking for. This is what a pastor should be like. He's, he's going to ordain elders in churches. Timothy, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. 1 Timothy 3, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's a sobering thing. It's a calling. Now, we have to trust the Lord. <laughs> but by the grace of God, we have tried to do due diligence with Stephen St. John. And so we've sent a letter out to the congregation. We ask, you got any dirt on this guy? Let us know. We've tried to get to know him. We've tried to spend time with him. And we have been nothing but encouraged. We have been so encouraged. And this is actually my opportunity to commend Stephen to you. And then Mike is going to come and and make a few comments as well. I do want to say that the thing I've been most encouraged by in, in getting to know Stephen is his wife. Jennifer is a happy wife. Every time I'm with her, I feel like this is a happy wife. And this guy has drugged her all over the world. And she's a happy wife. And to me, it reflects he's cared for his family. He has served his family. This woman loves this man. This woman is happy to be his wife. And they have served the Lord in a number of difficult ways. And I, speak, I think that speaks volumes about them. So I just want to say I commend Stephen to you. I commend him to you and encourage you to receive him 
as your, your pastor. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.